G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. I love it when I get to have my ideas tested and challenged and disentangled, when I get to wrestle with somebody who's wrestling on the same turf as I am, who doesn't necessarily disagree with me, but has different angles on things that I hadn't thought of. Ah, there is no greater juice than the intellectual juice of noticing things that you hadn't noticed before, hearing arguments you hadn't quite heard before, or hearing someone put their finger on something that you kind of vaguely felt but hadn't quite identified. In this crazy culture war that we call modern civilization, Sarah Hayter is such a refreshing voice. It's also lovely to reconnect with someone who you only know peripherally and whose work you've only vaguely kept an eye on and find that they have grown into someone even more sophisticated and nuanced and uh, and ferocious in their insights than when you last met them. Sarah initially came to my attention as a sort of a, a skeptic, a dissident of Islam, an ex-Muslim. She's a Pakistani-American writer and political activist who created uh, an, a group called Ex-Muslims of North America, which was trying to encourage religious dissent and make it okay to blaspheme and just to help former Muslims leave the religion uh, by linking them into support networks and so on. I didn't want to talk to her about that. That's not the focus of her career anymore. She's much more focused on the bigger Western cultural battles and the fate of small L liberalism. In this conversation, we talk we talk about liberal and liberalism, uh, needless to say, not in the Australian political context where lib- the Liberal Party is the Conservative Party, but in the traditional classical liberal ideal of uh, respecting one another and encouraging vibrant debate and having uncomfortable conversations and being open to other people's ideas and believing that you reach truth through dialogue and that only by fostering the freedom of the individual do we reach tolerance for everybody. And we're contrasting that school of thought to a prevailing school of thought that which we just agree to call wokeness for want of a better term, even though, of course, there are all kinds of problems with that word that has sort of become a lazy slur in many environments. But we're using it, we're trying to have some fealty towards its original meaning uh, of uh, describing a particular social justice phenomenon that's taking place that is not necessarily small L liberal. Um, if you want to find Sarah, there's a, we talk about a fascinating email exchange that she had with Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, the other, well, probably most famous uh, ex-Muslim uh, intellectual. And uh, you can find that on, on Sarah Hader's Substack, which is sarahader.substack.com. Uh, it's called Hold That Thought. I encourage you to read the full text of that exchange, although you'll get bits of it from this conversation as well. But Sarah's main gig at the moment is A Special Place in Hell, a hilarious uh, podcast that she does with another friend of this show, Megan Daum. Uh, it's a, it's a, a feminist podcast that does not toe the feminist line, if that's uh, one way of putting it. Uh, This is a conversation about wokeness, about the fate of liberalism, the fate of civilization, the clash of the generations in terms of wokeness and social justice, the future of the left, why we fall for conspiracy theories, whether there are differences between men and women. We've got it all, ladies and gentlepersons. I hope you enjoy the one and only Sarah Hayter. What's been going on? How was your pandemic? My pandemic, uh, it was, I mean, I spent it at home and it didn't do anything except for uh, reproduce. So that was, that's nice. Oh, great. Congratulations. Um, yeah. A lot of people, I think, chose that time to like have, have babies or like yeah. very, very young babies. It's a good time for young babies because yeah. you just, you just, you're just at home anyway. And so everybody's right. at home I mean, and it's fine. Yeah. You're at home going crazy. <laughs> Uh, when you have small children, either way, so yeah. you're yeah. you're paranoid, sleep deprived, and hysterical, uh, right. whether or not there's a pandemic. Right. So it was, a, it was a it was a good time. I had some health problems too, which wasn't great, but again, good time to have them. Because well, is it a good time to have them? Because you can't see a doctor. Well, it, I, the kind of problems I had. Uh, you know, it was more like rest up and don't do certain things. Um, and so I wasn't doing those things and it was great. <laughs> it worked. Right. Where, where, <clears throat> where were you living? Um, I'm in the DC area. 
Okay. And so I'm still good. around. Um, it's good. I'm in the suburbs, which is, it, it's great. You know, we're homebodies That's anyway perfect. and have like a backyard yeah. so you can go outside. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not in an area that went super duper insane about it. Although I did mm-hmm. get mask shamed once and it was very frustrating because by then it, we were outside. I was outside yeah. and not wearing yeah. a mask. And some guy came up and said something about how he believed the science. And it was a really aggressive way of saying it. Um, and he, sure he said exactly just threw a mask. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just don't understand um, what was going through his head. But yeah, I was outside in a parking lot and I got yelled at by some guy. So for not surreal, wearing, isn't for not it? A mask. Yeah. It's just crazy. I'm, I call them castles of hysteria, these, these artifices that we're building, that we're increasingly inhabiting, where we just become hysterical with each other and against the other. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, he's, he's in his little castle of hysteria, and he's quite certain that you're the bad guy in the castle yeah. on the other hill uh, yeah. doing your nasty things and spreading all your diseases. Right. It was, I mean, he's it was a very peculiar uh, illness. I mean, any, viruses are, they're bad for morale and like public <laughs> trust you know I mean, so if you have if you have just a nuclear war threat it's it brings us together at least you know but this it's a the enemy is you and you're yeah. snot or whatever <laughs> yeah i love i'm literally writing that down and i'm gonna make a t-shirt viruses are bad for morale yeah. <laughs> I'll just wear that around town. That's the kind of um, insight and wisdom you can expect from me. Um, I love it. I'll attribute it to you. It'll start on a t shirt that says, Viruses are bad for wow. Sarah Ada. People who know you will be like, Sarah, why would Sarah, isn't she mostly on about like, you know, liberalism and like secularism? Why would she be talking about that? I'll be like, I've got audio tape that I can play. Yeah. She said it. Viruses are bad for morale yeah i uh i remember the mask i was mask shamed on it was the same trip where i was uh where i saw your friend megan and uh i was in la and uh, omicron was going bananas this was january of 2022 and i had to go to austin because i was going to talk to to rogan again and i'd been texting joe and he was like oh come on down i've got a slot you can do the show and i was like okay so i hop on a a flight and the people opposite me and it was one of those things where because I was booking at the last minute like it was $40 more to fly first class from LA to Austin than it was to just <laughs> book a you know a normal seat so I've been uh, like a cheap El Cheapo first class on Alaska Airlines and sitting opposite me are these two very you know the very clean prim proper fussy gay couple that you sometimes mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. who are perfectly manicured like literally manicured yeah, yeah. They smell nice they, and everything. They yeah. smell nice. They're they're the kind of gay that I always wish I were and have not got the chops to 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 become. And they were sitting opposite me, triple masked, <laughs> triple. <laughs> ma- I shit you not, Sarah. I'd ne- I'd heard I'd heard people talk about it. I'd never seen it out in the wild. I was wow. trying to take surreptitious photos for my for my husband and on my phone while I was like just sitting there pretending to be to be feeling with my phone. They had a surgical mask over an N95 with an N95 <laughs> on top of the surgical mask on top of the N95 like a surgical mask sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if a virus gets through that, that is fucking... It deserves to win, virus. frankly. It if it gets in, I mean, we gotta... It deserves it to, to kill you. I, I <laughs> yeah. don't want COVID to kill anyone except for you. I want this particular specific gay couple on this specific, specific flight to die of COVID. That's the, oh, those are the only people in the world who I want to die of COVID. Um, anyway, let's talk, uh, let's talk about wokeness. Well, one, one thing I thought was very interesting from your life at the moment, and also, can we just agree that we'll just call the phenomenon wokeness? Or do you, have you, what do you call it? I have no problem with calling it that. I think the you know definition wars are well. We can talk about it. We can talk about how we might define it. What I is think it? people struggle with defining it, right? Yeah, yeah I, it's, I, it's tough. Yes. How do you define? I I have a workable. I had a workable definition of oh, cancel yes? culture. Uh, no, okay. cancel culture specifically, okay. but I've never found a, a good one of wokeness. What do you? Because I mean, about? it is it is a tough thing to pin down, actually. So uh, I, it I get kind of frustrated when this is like this is a kind of. Uh, 
gotcha thing where well, well how do you even how do you know what wokeness is if you can't even define it and it's right. like well you know there's a lot of things that i know about and i you know if you if you ask me to verbalize very clearly and you know uh uh put up all these you know boundaries of what it is or isn't there's going to be like that one example that doesn't fit exactly and then you're going to say i'm an idiot because it, it what about that right. and what about you right. know so it can be a, it's a difficult thing for the average person but wokeness is one of those things where you 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 know it when you see it right like p- pornography wasn't that uh yeah wasn't <laughs> or that obscenity was that's what it was obscenity i know i know it when i see it um but i think that there is something to it as well um in my so I, I posted on my Substack a conversation with Ayan Hirsi Ali that I had um, two years ago or three years ago almost actually it was tw- end of twenty twenty and uh, it, we were approached by the the founders of of a now defunct website called Letter Wiki which was really interesting I don't know if you remember that but people would write letters to each other back mm. and forth and they were kind of th- their idea was uh, to break away from the Twitter you know yelling at each other through tweets that doesn't get anybody's point to cross kind of thing and stay away from the mob and just two smart people have, you know, write a letter to each other. Yeah. No, um, I like that. I knew those, I knew those guys uh, a bit and yeah. those individuals who, who founded that are now at Substack. Is that right? Yeah, they're at Substack. Yeah. Uh, I think it, Substack swallowed it up. They're, Auss- uh, they're, they're, they're Aussies <laughs> slash South Africans slash, they're part of, they're, my, they're from my hemisphere. So I claim Yeah, they them. have an accent that sounds a little bit like yours. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Carry on. <laughs> That's what I know. Okay. Now that I've, now that I've pissed on my territory and claimed uh, uh, ownership of the of the geniuses behind uh, your your conversation with Ian, carry on. Right. Right. Yeah. So they they reached out to me and um, they were like, "Who do you want to you know speak to?" And I whatever we 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 had all these uh, discussions about what might be interesting, and they brought up Ian. They said Ian is interested in having a conversation. Like, would you? want to make this happen. And so we, we chatted, um, uh, on like zoom, um, uh, the, the founders and, and Ion and myself, and we talked about what we might talk about, like what, you know, what are we wanting to discuss? And it was interesting because everybody assumed, I think there were like five people on the call and like everybody was assuming that we would talk about Islam, but within, you know, minutes, the conversation shifted so fast into what is going on with this woke stuff. Um, and it, it, cause this was, I mean, 2020, which was George Floyd era. Mm, mm. Um, so everything was on fire all the time. And, uh, it, it, we found that we couldn't, it felt bizarre almost to, to shift our attention and, you know, unnaturally into something that we didn't, we, we didn't feel like was the, the, the dumpster fire right in front of us. Um, yeah. so it, in our conversation, we've, we were just discussing how we felt about things. And I said that, you know, I'm, I think the woke have already won. Like, I, I don't think, I don't even think this is a battle. It's not a culture war. This is nothing we've already lost. And she was very, she was very surprised by this. So we decided that we wanted to talk about this in our letters. And we had this exchange and Ayan's point was, um, is essentially that, uh, liberalism is strong and liberals are strong. Like there's these, you know, warriors of, with enlightenment values and they'll stand up and they uh, will persuade people. And it it was actually a very uh, optimistic uh, perspective. Mine was different. (laughs) Um, uh, I feel, I felt then, uh, now I think I've, I've changed a little bit, but in a, in a more nihilistic direction, actually. Um, But yes. So at the time though, I said that it's not the case that, we like we aren't defending the gates you know against the barbarians um like they've they've already won uh and uh we need to recognize that that it's already uh too late not from the perspective of it's too late to work it's too late to do something about it but that we have to recognize the battle in front of us we have to recognize how far along things have got gotten um to fully you know be able to accurately prepare for what lies ahead of us and what we will need to do mm. about it. And it, it was frustrating to me because at that time, it, this was a very unpopular attitude. You know, it was, it's just, I still heard quite a bit back then. I hear less of this now um, from fellow, you know, liberal heterodox thinker types that this is sort of just, um, you know, a, a, a fever, <laughs> you know, we're just going to mm. shake it off. We're just going to, we just have to get people to recognize what's going on and they'll snap out of it. 
Um, and I, I think that's very clearly a um, naive attitude. Uh, and it doesn't really, it's not fully grappling with what's going on. Um, and I thought that's that, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I had hoped that uh, that we would talk today and you would say, well, 2020 was sort of <laughs> like, that was the flashpoint, right? I mean, everyone had been locked inside for months, yeah. only tapping yeah. away on their computers during the pandemic. And, you know, then you had this viral moment and the racial reckoning and race riots. And mm-hmm. so, of course, I was at my, at, I was maximally pessimistic, uh, speaking as Sarah Hayter in 2020. And now I feel like there's, the pendulum is swinging a bit back and people are becoming a bit more reasonable. But no, you're full. Uh... Um, so it's, it, it is true that we saw a lot of the, the most extreme elements back then uh, when emotions were running very high. But there's so there's, uh, you know, it, it can become confusing because when you see uh, most of the extremists like come out of the woodworks, you think, OK, this is the worst aspect. But but I think something is bad um, or it has gained a lot of ground when it takes over kind of the foundations of something. And I think that it has taken over the fundamental assumptions of at least American institutions, I might say Western institutions, but I'm less familiar with uh, anything outside of America. As as Americans, uh, <laughs> are, are, we're famous for uh, famous for this. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it, I, I think that the the assumptions of wokeism and and uh, the drives of wokeism have been fully incorporated. Um, at the most, you know, basic levels in American institutions and society. So no, we're not seeing like the most uh, fund- extreme edges of it at the moment because emotions are not so high. Um, but we're seeing something else. And I think we, um, it's not that I'm pessimistic. It's that I have started just to, to look at this thing from, a more historical perspective. And it is clear that we've been walking down this road for a very, very long time. And I don't know if it was inevitable that we would have something like wokeism, but you can, you know, follow, you can follow the line, you can follow the path and you can see how we got here. Um, And you can see the kinds of, um, I guess, ideologies or even assumptions about human nature or the world that we started to accept and pull in into, you know, public consciousness. And now, now it's kind of come together into this monster we call wokeism, but I wouldn't call it wokeism anymore. I think I would just call it, I think this is just a state of the left. Right. Yeah. That may be a clear, cleaner way of putting it when it's this ubiquitous. I mean, one point that you and I on Hesse Ali make is the, is the analogy to religion. And both of you come from a, dog, a dogmatic faith background and have then repudiated that. And so you see commonalities between the sort of secular religiosity of the, the social justice fervor and uh, formal dogmatic religions. And I mean, maybe it sounds like what you're saying is that in the, if if this movement does have an analogy to a faith, then 2020 is like the extreme, like jihadist outburst. And now we don't have the conditions that make that out kind of an outburst necessary, mm-hmm. but we're all sort of, we've all just become nominal Catholics as nominal wokesters. Like we're all just walking around the way that, the way that, you know, most religious people are not that religious, but they just sort of carry the assumptions of their faith. Yeah, Maybe yeah. we're all and, just walking around, not that woke, but carrying the assumptions of wokeism. And you'll notice that the the assumptions are actually not questioned even within heterodox spaces. And I find myself saying things like this, actually. So what um, are, where, I know. think we do need to get definitional now. What are those assumptions, for example? And then we can talk, because I think in your exchange with Ion, you do a, a great job of actually defining this. And I'll bring you some of your definitions in a second. But what are the assumptions that you're talking about that we're walking around with? Yeah, well, let's talk about a, a uh, just a, I guess, a, Less important assumption, but it is an, an assumption that uh, diversity, racial diversity specifically, is valuable in and of itself. Right? And that's an assumption. Um, that's an assumption that's critical to something like DEI, uh, you know, the institution of DEI, and to the acceptance of something like DEI. Um, and you'll see heterodox thinkers, and you know, including myself, <laughs> say things like, well, uh, of course we like, of course diversity is good. Uh, but these guys are just taking it a little bit too far. 
Um, but I think we need to stop and think about whether uh, it, it makes sense to have that as a foundational value, you know, to have diversity in and of its, just, just by that I mean specifically racial diversity, um, that that in itself is uh, an important value and so important that we will uh, sacrifice other things for this value in order to achieve this value versus, you know, intellectual diversity or some other kind of diversity if we want to stick in, stick to diversity in itself. Mm. Interesting. Some of the hallmarks of what you kind of define wokeness as in your exchange are, well, you basically say it's a delegitimization project <clears throat> that basically it wants to delegitimize humanist enlightenment values. And you point to a few characteristics. You point to circular logic, appeals to the authority of identity as a an idea, the privileging of lived experience over objective analysis, and the exploitation of language like harm and safety and trauma to rule out discussion uh, and end rational de- debate before it begins. I thought those characteristics were a good place to start for trying to understand what we're talking about when we use the term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you notice that they're all about, they're kind of, uh, they're focused on what wokeism, like how it does what it does, and not uh, the ends that it sees. Yeah. That's so I, I, yeah. Now that I'm looking back at that definition, which I thought was, you know, at the time I was writing it, I was very impressed with myself for, you know. Yeah, you should be. It's hard to untangle what, what's going on. It's hard I think to it, know, isn't it? I think it was good. And I think it does capture one element of it, which is how, how it goes about its business. Mm. Um, the tactics that it uh, utilizes and finds mm. legitimate. Liberals, traditional liberals would not find those tactics legitimate, but wokesters do. Mm. Uh, but towards what end? You know, that's the, that's the question. And I think that that question needs to be answered for a fuller definition, a complete definition of what wokeism is. And in my, you know, and I haven't fully formulated this, so, um, you know, uh, let's, with, with, a, with a grain of salt, let's, let's discuss it. Let's continue this discussion. Um, I... I can't find a value that is unique to wokeists that I wouldn't also say is very prevalent among the left in general. Can right. You- uh, well, only to the extent that wokeism can bump up against traditional left-wing values about economic justice and, uh, so, like, there, I, I do think there's a rift between traditional Bernie Sanders-style leftists who want to see a, you know, a significant overhaul of the way that Western capitalism functions to make to bring it more in line with, for example, Scandinavian capitalism, where the emphasis really of the whole project has to be on high taxation and rest, redistribution and empowering uh, workers and quality of life. Mm-hmm. That does seem to me to be at least, if not absent from, then certainly the volume turned down on those aspirations amongst worksters who would who would rather reframe things around identity groups. And if there were to be a redistribution, it would be a uh, a financial restitution of uh, traditionally disenfranchised ethnic groups mm-hmm. rather than, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a class war. Yeah, yeah. I think, I guess my response to that, and I, I, I'm... Partially agree with you, but I, I think that there's something that's changing, at least in the United States. I don't know if it has, uh, you know, if parallels in the rest of the Western world, but in the United States, we're seeing uh, the emergence of a new Democratic Party that it has a you know strong core of affluent Americans, um, and this is not historically been. The, the the base of of the Democratic Party or even a substantial amount of um, of such Americans as Democrats, but it's shifting and it's very interesting. Uh, I think leading the leading the charge are college educated Americans um, that are shifting over to the Democratic Party, particularly whites. So college educated whites are, you know, the Dem- they are Democrats. They are solidly Democrat. Um, they have money and mm. they have power. 
so there's, uh, I think it, it, so it started beginning from the, in the nineties where you started to see the democratic party in the United States increasingly, you know, getting more and more, um, or increasing shares, um, in upper middle to, you know, rich, uh, income levels and high income occupations, that kind of thing. Um, and now this has just been, this is, this is the dominant party, uh, among a certain class of Americans. So I think that following that, because the base of the democratic party is changing, it makes sense to me that the trend in the long term is going to be that the Bernie Sanders uh, economic <laughs> economic justice guys are about to uh, just you know disappear or shift parties um, because it is not the case. I think that the American Democratic Party cares very much about these things unless you unless you tie it down to race. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, but I mean, I just think that historically there's a waxing and waning between these two these two pools. Both parties have this tug of war, by the way. I mean, there, there is a historical tug of war on the left between uh, sort of social justice issues, civil rights in one basket and economic justice slash socialism in another basket. And on the right, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a mirror image uh, war between uh, the economic elites and the culture warriors. There's always been this, well, not always. But, but those economic both- elites are, you know, less and less likely to be Republicans. Uh, no, I think at the top there's a so the there's the middle class latte sipping Chardonnay swilling lefty who's <laughs> who's your Democrat right in big urban centres, but uh, the Davos like global power elite are still deeply concerned and almost solely concerned with economic matters and they will co-opt cultural matters to mm. enact their. Uh, their international regime of free trade and low taxation and low corporate taxation and high profits um, and low environmental regulation. But those, like, I think that there's, that is, there is still a, they, they do they are not, if you write a list of the things that they want out of government, it's not the same as your trailer trash in Tennessee who always votes Mm -hmm. Republican, right? So there's, Mm -hmm. there is that tug of war on the right as well. Uh, And, you know, sometimes you go through periods where the right is populist and sometimes you go through periods where the left is populist. So I guess my my hope is that this is a, this is a moment mm-hmm. at the moment where the left has been distracted and, and hoodwinked. And largely, I mean, when you talk to people on the left who, and this is a generational thing that I'd also love your thoughts on, when you talk to people on the left who are over the age of 35 – they know they they can see all this happening, and they think that it's corrosive, but they daren't talk about it because the twenty two year olds who don't have a gender uh, are are going to hound them out of the public square if they speak up about it. The question is, do those twenty two year olds end up <clears throat> taking over the whole asylum, or do they grow gradually more liberal as they age? I think that we we're already seeing we're already seeing some of those people who, who hope that, I mean, I wouldn't say it's 35 anymore. I would have said, I would, I would now say it's like 40 or 45 and above that that might be a traditional liberal and everybody under that kind of is a little bit woke to very woke. Um, and I, and I just think that it's, if it's an unquestioned assumption because of, for, for, for any reason, right. And, and for now it's, it's because the old school liberals are staying silent uh, but when it becomes an unquestioned assumption over time, it's it's not going to be challenged by anyone, and it's it's we're seeing that happen now, and we're seeing these institutions. Uh, uh, from it's it's really interesting because I work in or worked in uh, activism for a very long time, and that's been like that's been my experience uh, in the workplace. Really, has been uh, with in in progressive aligned activism space, um, nonprofit world. And it's amazing uh, what's happened and had the transformation from when I first got on board in which, you know, wokeism was just beginning to become a real thing. Um, but everybody kind of under, felt like, well, they had a point, you know, women do have, women do struggle in minorities and blah, blah, blah. And we need to, we need to worry about racism. We need to worry about all this. Um, and and uh, every, everybody was listening to, to the SJWs as, as we like called them then, but, but you could also you could you, there was a there was a, a a segment that could push back and they weren't going to be in, 
immediately vilified for pushing back. Now there's no space. There's no space for an opposition at all. Uh, and that's, I think that's an, in, it's an incredible change that I've seen in, in 10 years. Um, and I don't know how you walk back from that. I think the, the idea that this is just a, this is just a fever that we need to sweat out. Uh, it holds if you can then tell me how, how, how are we going to sweat it out? Right? Like, well, uh, so maybe, maybe the analogy of a fever that we sweat out isn't quite right, but maybe a better analogy is like a Hegelian kind of, uh, pendulum that where the, the thing that you end up with is a reincorporation of the best bits of the two warring theses that, that you went in with. Like, it's not... It's not the case that there's nothing that wokeness has brought to the table or has put on the table that's that that's worth paying attention to. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sort of walking a bit when you talk about unquestioned assumptions because I think you're you're pointing to something true that is truly dysfunctional intellectually to have this huge uh, mosaic of different assumptions that we're not allowed to question that everyone has to go into conversations sort of tacitly agreeing with. <clears throat> but on the other hand, I don't think it's necessarily true to say that we're evolving into that scenario from a situation where there were fewer unquestioned assumptions. I mean, the the wokester, the articulate wokester would say, we used to have just as many unquestioned assumptions, and that's what this whole social justice revolution of the past 10 to 15 years has been trying to address, because the unquestioned assumptions in the 80s were that trans people are degenerates and queers are perverts and Jews can't be trusted and Muslims are fanatics and women are woolly-headed and emotional uh, and you can't trust them in CEO positions. And in a boardroom, a trans woman of colour is certainly not to be listened to. And -hmm. those assumptions were governing all of us. We were all agreed with those. And there has to be, you know, a cultural revolution of sorts to overturn those assumptions and, and put in place new assumptions that we're never, we're never not going to have any assumptions that are all agreed upon. Otherwise we don't have a demos and we don't have a culture. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree that, that I agree with the general claim that there's always assumptions in any given, you know, in, in any given society for any, and those, those are good, actually. Like you need, you need, you need to have uh, a set of assumptions. Those are, those are otherwise called values. Um, you know, uh, and I would agree that the 80s were bad when it came to marginalized groups. Uh, but I would also add that some of the other uh, assumptions were simply liberal assumptions that in order to get past our ugliness, we need to have conversations. We need to be open with each other. We need to, uh, you know, uh, respect each other's uh, individual rights uh, that that we thought we would discover the truth through, um, you know, academic freedom, through free discourse, that this would, this would be, this is the path towards a more tolerant society. That assumption has been, I think, fully overturned by, you know, anybody younger than 30 doesn't assume this at all, that, you know, the, the marketplace of ideas is kind of a, uh, not just a cliche, which it was in my time. Now it's like, it, it's a hate it, indicator of, <laughs> Uh, a status um, of a, as a as a hateful person, really. Um, so I think that the assumptions I think go deeper than simply uh, liberalism is a way uh, liberal discourse will bring us to a more tolerant society. I think it's also um, an evolution in um, in other respects. I think that there used to be a left that prized as you said, you know, economic uh, redistribution, or, or we, let's just say material equality, you know, this idea that we, we, we should have uh, some kind of uh, equalization or redistribution or whatever, because the system itself is unfair. Um, but the, the, you might've called that, you know, socialism or whatever. And, then, and that's evolved that we don't, I don't think much of the left holds that anymore, but there's, there's still this idea of some kind of equality or egalitarianism. It evolved into some kind of social equality, social egalitarianism egalitarianism. And now I think the focus is on uh, morally affirming everyone equally. Um, And I think there's something incredibly insidious about that, actually. Um, But what do you mean morally affirming everyone equally? I mean, um, I mean, a lot of things with it, actually. But one of the things is to 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 say that uh, what you choose to be, what you are, is 
it just is, you know, valid to use one of those terms is what I choose to be and what I am. Is that not true? Uh, it, it, I mean, it depends like, on your values. Well, it depends on your values, like right? That, that sounds to me like a very old, old school. That sounds like something John Hume, I mean. No, 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 because I don't think, I don't think, I, I, if liberals would say you have the right to make a choice, even a bad one. They wouldn't say that it is morally equal. Right. And I think that that's, that's an interesting evolution, really, of, you know, you, you have the idea of a free choice. They took that from liberals. Um, and that's a, I, I like that idea. I like that value. Um, but then they expanded it and they say, well, I, you know, I have all these choices in this society in front of me, but these choices are not truly free. If society stigmatizes one and, you know, normalize, quote unquote, normalizes the other, um, and so we need a we need an equality on a level that's that's more social than it is uh, economic. Right, right. I see. And I mean, I think you're doing a good job of bringing back in this question of process rather than outcome. That that it's misguided to think about diagnosing wokeness as a set of beliefs. It's better to think about it as a as a way of behaving, a way of uh, conducting oneself. And that the liberal approach, which as which does all of the things that you just articulated, like respecting rights and having conversations and being open and being uh, generous of mind and uh, discovering truth through dialogue and believing that freedom will lead to tolerance rather than uh, lack of freedom leading to tolerance, that that's a whole set of processes rather than outcomes right, or conclusions. Right. Yeah, that. that no, but, but just to, I mean, to clarify, it, it it is the case that also. I think that's where I changed from what I said in my letter to Ayan, that I focused on just the process. And I thought that that was the only difference that mattered. And now I feel that the process is, is different, but also uh, the, the values and assumptions of the broader left have shifted just enough to make the old process, um, you know, unpalatable <laughs> and the new process uh, more intriguing, more interesting and, almost seem like a shortcut to, you know, this mm. moral affirmative equality that they want. Um, and I think that puts us into an, in an interesting place um, in, in terms of how do we deal with this thing? That's fascinating because I was, ju- I was going to, you've sort of headed me off at the past because I was going to talk, I was going to ask you about, there's always been uh, an, a field on which acceptable discourse takes place. And when you stepped beyond that field, you got slapped back into line. Uh, there have always been things that you can and can't say. Uh, and some of the things that you could say as recently as, uh, you know, when we were born is, are now considered rightly to be beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. And there are certain things that you'll, you won't be able to say in the future that you currently can, uh, that it's probably good that we will, we will have gotten rid of. Um, the, argument about like you can't say anything these days you can't tell a joke oh there's this chilling of speech cancel culture etc you can sometimes respond to that by saying well it's just a changing definition of what the things are that you can't say there are all kinds of things that you couldn't say in polite society in the 1970s about christ our lord or something that you that Mm -hmm. you can say now and there are all kinds Mm -hmm. of things that you can't say now about trans people that you could say uh, back then, um, it's not that it's not the nature of the prohibition that's changing. It's just the things that we're putting in the basket of okayness. Um, mm-hmm. But w- when you say that there are certain values and assumptions that make the process of liberalism harder, I think you're also onto something that is a potential refutation of the point that I just made, which is if your worldview is that people are vulnerable and fragile and oppressed and that it does them real harm to subject them to debate, then how can you advocate for a process like liberalism where debate is its founding virtue? Right, right. So it it forestalls future progress and in a way that 80s liberalism, as ugly as it was, didn't. Exactly. That's right. At least there was still, at least in the bad old days, there was still a recognition that the way to get towards a better future was to hash it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, together. All right, on that pessimistic note, where to from here then? Yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I, 
Well, let's look at how we got here then, because you alluded to that earlier, and it may provide some pointers. You said that you've been looking at the kind of long-term trends, and you've been asking yourself, how did we get here? And you've been looking at the assumptions about human nature and the world that got us here. Mm -hmm. What are those? Yeah, well, let me take the long road to answer the question. So I don't have a full answer to that question. That's that's the first that's the first way to start. But I'm, I'm looking into it now and I'm trying to figure I'm trying to walk walk back as far as I you know need to go um, to see how how this could be possible. Um, but I got started, I think you know because I, I was into um, you know ex-Muslim activism and I had this was my like awakening, I guess. I wouldn't call it not a awakening is now a, a, a term ruined because of the woke. But um, the, this is when I was a good little progressive liberal, and I was I started advocating for you know uh, the for, for the rights to 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 leave Islam, um, the religion of Islam, and and for you know protections, speech protections in the Muslim world, uh, for the abolishment of blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, uh, and general uh, acceptance of dissent within Muslim communities. And I found uh, that I was not actually at home in, in the left. And this was very surprising to me. And this was the first time I ran into something like this. But as everybody who's been in this space long enough recognizes that there are there were lots of confusing behaviors there were lots of ways in which the liberal left didn't behave as if the way that it should if it ran according to the rules that we thought it ran according to um and if it was the case which this was this is was my assumption for a very long time that this was they were only wrong on the question of islam and if i could just it was because of they were they were misinformed and if i could just give them the right information, if I could tell them about the stakes of it, if I could give them, you know, the, the testimonies of all these ex-Muslims and blah, 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 and the stats on what's going on in the Muslim world, uh, they would agree with me. And then I found that that didn't work. Uh, so I started looking around and thinking about what might be actually going on here and what what, what were my assumptions that, in fact, were unwarranted. And I think I, I just I thought that we were still in this Enlightenment era liberalism. Um, and, I, I, you know, looking back, I don't know why I assumed this, because I, I'm young enough that I started to see the changes in college when I was in college. Mm. Uh, I had started to see the shift then and there. Uh, but but I just thought, you know, it, it's just a small strain of it. I didn't think that the the project as a whole was in jeopardy in some serious way. And I had, you know, I had a, I had a great college experience too. So it was, um, I just didn't see, I didn't see it coming then. Mm, mm. Um, and now I feel as if I just, I missed all the signs and, uh, I'm, I'm trying to see how badly did I miss them and what would, what do I need to question that I didn't question before? I think to some degree, this, this marriage between, old school, you know, socialist type progressives and liberals was a bad one. Mm. Um, and liberals gave too much ground and they thought that, that the, 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 the values of the progressive and you know, socialist ish, uh, left and liberal values could be merged in a way that was good for everybody. And I think it was good for a short period of time, but I think that it's, it's clear now that, uh, this has been, uh, not wonderful for, mm. for you, arguably for either. You know, <laughs> I think it's been both have been deformed by the other in a way that um, that thwarts the thing that they are best at doing. You know, the thing that they mm. each do that is actually valuable <laughs> to society. Well, I mean, it's been catastrophic for economic justice, yeah. and the yeah. more conspiratorially minded of mm -hmm. us, uh, like my buddy Russell Brand, will say that there are reasons for this and that it's not an accident that you've mm -hmm. got, uh, you know, people being infuriated on and inflamed by identity politics on the left and you've got people inflamed by the culture wars on the right voting for... And, and the result is that uh, an economic elite in both parties can continue to run mm -hmm. the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know... <laughs> well, 
tangent, but I, I, I think it's so interesting how how just everybody seems to be gravitating towards this conspiratorial thinking. Um, it, it's it's bizarre to me. I, it's yeah. it's against my nature, but I also see what why people get pulled into it so much. It's a it's a it's comforting to think mm. that really we just need to defeat these these bad guys at the top. We need to find a way to get them, and then the whole thing collapses like a house of cards um, because they're pulling the strings the whole time. Uh, but something stranger is happening, I think. Yeah, but also to make another analogy to religion, I think we are just hardwired to see the hand of purpose behind mm-hmm. patterns, mm-hmm. and you know things can emer- things can be emergent, incredibly complicated systems can emerge from nothing. I mean, look at natural selection; it's almost impossible to believe that natural selection uh, is a more plausible story than that we were created by the hand of a deity mm-hmm. uh, and yet nonetheless it is the true it is the true explanation as far as we know and so and and you know similarly there can be incentives embedded in a system that nudge things in a certain direction such that powerful wealthy people tend to get their way and you yeah. don't actually need to have them all meeting in uh you know in a cavern carved into a mountain in dr evil's lair figuring out how this is going to happen the way that uh you know some conspiracists might might think, but nonetheless, the outcome can seem to our minds that are hardwired to find purpose and agency in things quite suspicious. Right. And I, I always wonder, like, what do the, they think that the, these people who already have all this power and money, what, what else do they want? More power, more money? Like, what, what do they gain yeah. from impoverishing us? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, mean, I, think they, <laughs> I think they want more of it. I think they've always, I think the idea is that these people have always ruled the world and, okay. uh, and have always shat on everybody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, they want to entrench their own, they want to feather their own nests. Yeah. And, and in a way it is actually, uh, it, it's more frightening to to think about it as, uh, you know, a body without a head. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I, I can see it's almost comforting to imagine that, that they know exactly what they're doing and the, they're doing it because they have bad intentions and yeah. not because they have very good intentions, but just some strange ideologies. But, you know, more interestingly, um, it, you were talking about incentives, but there's also just the idea that, that the human mind and the human um, rationality is extremely flawed. And we are uh, we are very very good at picking up things in our social contexts and just absorbing them through our skin and justifying them and rationalizing them later. And that's happening on every level, and it, it is happening to the elites everywhere. Um, you know, they are moving around like lemmings. They don't think that they are, but but they are. Um, they're adopting a worldview that acts like a religion um, and thinking. You know, you know when they when they use their their rational rationalizing powers, they can make sense of it. Um, but ultimately, that's not why they're adopting it. Um, which I think is is that's that's a way in which I think I've moved away from the kind of person that I was maybe ten years ago as a young activist that's advocating towards you know for for more secularism, uh, for less religion in the world. And now I kind of feel like, well. Um, is this something that we can really turn off? Um, Is, is the, the, can can we just hope for at the best of times, a, a religion that doesn't cause too much harm? (laughs) Because Mm. that's the best thing that we can, we can work towards. Mm. That's depressing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) What can I, (laughs) what can I do? (laughs) No, I mean, it's, it's, Look, on just to put a button on the on the question of liberalism versus economic justice. I, I, you know, if it's any consolation to your younger self who became jaded at the illiberalism of the left on questions of Islam, it's. I was reminded by a very very clever colleague of mine who lives in Europe, who's a journalist and uh, you know a very well educated kind of Oxbridge floppy haired uh, um, Englishman that. The left has not traditionally been terribly liberal. Like it's in our <laughs> lifetimes, we associate those two things as going together. Because when we grew up, uh, the left was the side of politics that was more small l liberal and fair minded and very into having debates and you know puffing on pipes and talking things through. But traditionally, that was a, a conservative approach. And you know, my grandmother was a communist and in Europe because she was an anti-fascist, and that was the mm. only. 
that was the only thing that you could choose to be in the 40s. Like, there was no liberalism. Mm -hmm. There was communism versus fascism, and you chose a side. And she certainly wasn't a fascist, so she was a communist. It's a very sort of post-war, even maybe post-1960s idea that the left is the other. But, you know, in the 50s, the left loved Stalin. In the fifties, mm-hmm. leftism was about totalitarianism, the power of the people, conformism, the worker as a widget, as a unit of you know strength, only insofar as the individual is subsumed by the larger group. It was lack of agency. It was absence of dissent. The, you know, the left is not is not necessarily the friend of the of the liberals. So maybe it's just swings and roundabouts. And you know, the other thing that this friend says is, we liberals have to remember, liberalism has never been terribly popular. Mm-hmm. It's a triumph that we managed to take over the world during the Enlightenment and provide the world with the bounty that it has seen in the past couple of centuries. But it's highly unusual and highly irregular. And when you actually poll people about their beliefs, beyond the lip service, most people aren't very crazy about smaller liberalism. 70 to mm-hmm. 80% of people would rather just be around people who think like them and not be too bothered having arguments all the time and you know, trying to be too nice to outsiders. And mm-hmm. I think you touch on this as well in your exchange with Ayan, where you talk about liberalism being a brilliant philosophy, but kind of counterintuitive psychologically. And by contrast, wokeism has no real good philosophical grounding, but gee, it's, it's nice. It sort of touches all the right buttons psychologically. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, it leans right in to what we want to do anyway. <laughs> You know, what we want to do, and now it justifies it. But I do think, mm. I mean, not to get too, like, deep uh, into into this, but I, I, I wonder if, you know, liberalism is an incomplete philosophy too. You know, and what you were saying about uh, the fact that it wasn't always a friend of the left or the left wasn't always a friend of liberalism. And I'm wondering if small L liberalism and small C conservatism are just, uh, they're better thought of as... Uh, attitudes or biases, you know, in, in terms of how we accomplish certain things, but the, 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 what still has to be something else. Right. Yeah. What you, you don't get yeah. You mean biases in a good way? Biases, yeah. I mean, I mean, biases towards like, we're always a liberal might be biased to say uh, more freedom, more choice. And a conservative might be biased to say, uh, no, let's restrict it, or no, let's think about what our you know parents did and why they did it, or yeah, but a bias towards a certain kind of action. Yeah, yeah. This now you're channeling Jonathan Haidt, sort of in oh. like, you know, well, yeah, he's a social psychologist, yeah, at, yeah. At, and you know he he's brilliant in the sense that he he sort of he says all of our political arguments are fundamentally us trying to make post hoc rationalizations for something mm-hmm. we feel in our gut. Because mm-hmm. there are particular kinds of people's instincts or biases that, that mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are types of people and you can measure this. Psychologists measure this. There are like five metrics or seven metrics along which human personalities can be measured. You know, one of which is openness to new experience, one of which is respect for authority, one of which is like revulsion towards the other or something, you know, whatever these things are. And you can pretty closely test people without them knowing it, you know, not knowing what you're testing for. And then you can make predictions about what their political arguments are going to be. And they'll have all the reasons in the world why they believe their political arguments. But at the end of the day, they're just, they're just inventing reasons to do the bidding of what their gut, their, their moral intuition tells them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I love that kind of analysis. It's kind of frightening in its implications though, because it's like, can we really, like, what's the point of, of talking about it? Then, <laughs> you know, what's the point of this, of political discourse that fundamentally well, yeah, we're prone to certain fatalist. things anyway? Yeah, we're prone, but you can, over, yeah. you can override them. He's not a fatalist about it. He's like, yeah, in yeah, fact, yeah. he finds yeah. it empowering. He's like, once you can notice that the reason why you're attracted towards uh, you know, closing the borders is because of a very natural aversion that your type of personality has uh towards you know dirty otherness or something then you can mm-hmm. you can sort of invoke your higher consciousness to mm-hmm. make rational arguments to try to find a common ground with people who don't share that intuition yeah um, I, yeah. I i took that framework into a really problematic place um in a in a podcast i did but they like put that for the you know paying subscribers or something what was it uh, uh you sh- okay uh <laughs> Uh, so I thought about, I was thinking about 
um, what Jordan, Jordan Peterson has been saying about we haven't had women in the workplace for a very, you know, this is a new thing that women and men are working together in the workplace and we don't actually know if it'll work. Uh, so it was a kind of a, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm paraphrasing it in a really bad, this is not what he said, look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the essence of the argument was just that this is, this is a new unique environment and we don't actually know how we work, how we will work together, whether we will work together um, and what are the, you know, what are the consequences for society that, that we are working together. I don't know whether they, the, the, in that specific scenario, uh, he's right. Because I think that you could, you could go back in time, you know, hundreds of years before anybody went to work uh, anywhere and we were working on family farms or whatever. Men, men and women did work together, actually. Um, perhaps not strange men with strange women. Um, but, it, but I thought about the, the, just, you know, the implications of... Uh, a certain kind of psychology overtaking a field or an institution. Um, and I thought about uh, that in conjunction with what Richard Reeves has been talking about um, in his, uh, he, he has this book about, uh, I think it's called like on boys and men or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah. And, and he, he talks about how boys are just being left behind in education. Um, and then I was looking into this myself and it's just like, yeah, there's just like no boys in K through 12, but then it continues on forward. They don't go to college uh, and they don't become. Wait, there's no like, boys in K through 12? What does that mean? Uh, not no, sorry. <laughs> but the, but they, start, they, start, they start dropping out. They start dropping out like flies um, or they stop disengaging. Um, you mean they start uh, dropping very, out very, after they're allowed to after like tenth grade? Yeah, yeah. The second they're, the, when they're allowed to, you see less of you see less of boys almost instantly. Um, but you see, you see them disengage far quicker than that actually. Um, so we're just failing. We're failing boys uh, at a very we start we start failing them very early and then they, we continue to fail them. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting beside the point. The, the The point is that he was pointing to all these women who are now graduating with these higher education degrees and we can expect to see certain fields being basically dominated by women. Um, and we have seen that in certain fields already. That's already the case. It's true of, of, uh, you know, psychology, which is, I think what Jonathan Haidt first pointed, like, I think, I think he pointed it out at some point that it was, um, there's a lot of women in this field. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, we're seeing academia, we're seeing journalism, like media companies and corporations, we're seeing, well, corporations as a whole, right, like uh, Fortune 500 companies um, become more and more susceptible to woke thinking. And I'm wondering how much of it is simply due to the fact that they have more of the kinds of person that is <laughs> like it, due to their own you know, psychology that they that they are biased towards, more likely to accept woke precepts. And by that, I mean more women. That women are more susceptible to what conservatives call the woke mind virus. Well, women are more susceptible to uh, being, you know, having, having, to finding smears like bigot very troubling for a, for a whole number of reasons. Um, but the kinds of, uh, the way that the, the woke pull us in one direction or another socially, I think is more effective on women. Um, I think that's that's pretty fairly clear, actually, but even by the way that women behave. Um, and to what extent is what we're seeing in institutions simply a secondary effect of the fact that the kind of person that is more likely to say, I care about the fact I care. I care that everyone here feels, you know, equally respected and and that their that their dignity is is you know, upheld by everybody, everybody, their colleagues and their, and their, um, um, superiors and whatever. And I care about that more than I care about free speech. Right. In other words, if you got women out of the workforce, they wouldn't be so, we wouldn't be so woke. <laughs> well, I mean, so it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's messed up from, if you think about it just from purely the, the implications. <laughs> so try not to think about it. Um, let, let's see if it's right, like if it actually has grounding. Because I think how that... How would we see? How, how would we what? How would we see whether it's right? I mean, I guess you'd have to look at, at workplaces where there's an underrepresentation of women and see whether mm-hmm. or not they're less woke. Yeah, actually. And I think we would find that that's true. I think that's pretty... Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Can, can I mean, you, 
Can you think of a workplace that's that's very male and also very woke? Mm, maybe not, but I can certainly or think field. of reverse. I can think of fields that are very female and not woke, like okay. teaching and and not nursing. woke. I don't know about that. Yeah, I think teaching is pretty woke. Um, at the higher levels, it's certainly woke. Uh, yeah, teachers' colleges are extremely woke. It's less uh, female at the higher levels. Like the most, probably the most female-dominated occupation would be a primary school teacher. And I don't think, I don't uh, think schools, I don't hear of like hysterical cancel culture outbreaks in primary schools. Hmm. No, I don't. Um, I think it's it, that's a that's a tough one because it's not quite an institution. It's just like you know, you know, one teacher working with 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 kids. It would be hard to measure if it went super woke anyway. Well, you might um, have scenarios where a teacher expresses something in the break room uh, about, you know, an opinion about, I don't know, sure. transgender politics or something like yeah, that yeah. and then gets fired from the primary school. I don't hear instances like I that. I think teachers are woke-ish. I think the teachers are woke, more woke than the communities that they are that they are a part of reliably, but maybe not too far apart from the communities because they are part they are uh, deeply embedded in their local community. So it's kind of a Teachers are kind of tough, but I think if you do look at the higher levels of teaching, I think if you look at teachers, like uh, colleges anywhere, they're the most they're the most woke institutions. Out yeah, there. but the male the male college professors, I mean, are so woke. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not saying that men have no part in part to play here. I'm just um, saying that if you know, if you if just from the Jonathan hate. Uh, framework if you mess with the you know the, the the percentages of a population um and you increase one that is more susceptible to a certain kind of thinking and decrease the other even a little bit um that you know gives uh an incentive to one kind of framework and a disincentive to it to another one i mean it's possible yeah i mean it's possible if you had a more masculinized workforce then there would be there would be less fragility or like less complaints if the boss were to say like come on let's just get back to work let's stop talking about justice uh, and let's stop feeling bad about the fact that someone made a remark about our clothes or something but you know well, the, the I mean, more, more fundamentally i think and i i'm not i'm i don't want to speak too out of turn but i think this is something that is well established that women are less comfortable with hierarchies in general um social hierarchies so you can see that as being in itself problematic in the workplace, and you can also see it indirectly play out um, when it comes to uh, you know a, a, a revolutionary like like a, a struggle to uh, hold power to account, you know, and and tell you know tell the make the boss feel as if they're not. Uh, uh, they can't tell us what you, they can't just boss us around. They can't uh, force us to do one thing or another. But I, and I think that in the in the in the context of at the very least of the workplaces that I'm very familiar with, uh, which is again the progressive ish uh, nonprofit world, it's really bad. It, it, there was a really interesting piece that was published by I think it was Ryan Grimm on the, in the Intercept. I, I don't mm. know if, if that's exactly who, but there was this really interesting piece about how hard it is for progressive activists and nonprofit institutions to find an executive director. <laughs> it's like, you can't get anyone to take the job because it's a horrible job. You mm. will just be, you will be putting on fires all the time. You are on trial all the time. Uh, and it is a nightmare position for anyone. Even if you're, even if you're a minority, even if you're like a black woman, you don't want to be in that job. You don't want to be the person at the top, which is a really interesting reversal of the way that it should be right you should be you should want to be uh ed should be want to be the person in power um but in these work environments the the somehow the power has been you know inversed in it's really interesting, interesting I, I mean my intuition about the about hierarchy and the sexes whilst i take the grain of truth in what you're saying that men can be comfortable with hierarchy you look at the military and so on uh highly masculinized uh, structures the i don't get the sense that women are likelier to upset the apple cart in and 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 push back against bosses being inappropriate i mean if anything my intuition runs more along the traditional uh, feminist 
criticism of the patriarchy, which is that women are expected to be compliant and go along and get along and say, yes, okay, I'll do it. And men are the troublemakers, that women are underpaid because they're less aggressive in negotiations and men are more willing to challenge their superiors, that there are more male CEOs because males jostle more against the 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 system and try to upset things and strategize whereas I, I think uh, we're confusing two different things which okay. is there's a there's a there's the preference for how you want your social envir- environment to be and how you behave uh in, you know when confronted with a particular situation so right. you can you you can have it it can be the case that women are less likely to be confrontational but also that they prefer a workplace uh, in which confrontation is heavily discouraged and you know uh, looked down upon or whatever, and then when you have a certain it, it, a certain percentage of people th- with that preference, you see the work environment shift. Mm. And, I, and I and I don't say this to mean like kick women out of the workforce. <laughs> I, no, I know I know that's like that's what's gonna that's what's gonna happen. That's not what I mean. I meant I meant it in the sense that of of how you brought it up, which is you know now that you know. Now that we know that maybe this is what's going on, uh, we can talk about it. We can address it. Uh, I mean, you know. it's fascinating, and I will. Uh, I will. I want to have this final conversation about sex, gender, and uh, and the differences between men and women, just for our uh, our subscribers, Sarah. So I'll bid, I'll bid farewell to uh, to the the freebies, and I hope they've enjoyed this conversation with you. And I thank you for being part of the conversation. Um, but I want to I want to drill in on. This. To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations on Substack. Substack.